Well, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get right to our program. Unfortunately, uh, the House is going to be voting very shortly, so we want to get to our featured speaker today. Um, we're very lucky to have uh, Jeff Flake joining us. Uh, I don't think he needs much of an introduction. He's a congressman from, from Arizona representing the 6th District. He's been uh, in Congress for a few years now. He's now serving his, his fifth term. And uh, certainly has made a name of, for himself on a variety of issues. He's been the thorn of the, in the side of many uh, House appropriators. Uh, and also on today's topic, uh, which is uh, changing the relationship between the United States and Cuba. He's been one of the out most outspoken members uh, of Congress, certainly the Republican Party, in uh, changing our relationship with, with, with Cuba, liberalizing trade and, and economic relations. And, and that will be the subject of his talk now. Without any further ado, I'll turn things over to Congressman Flick. Well, thanks. I appreciate accommodating the schedule. I think we'll be voting in a, a couple of minutes. I appreciate being here. If you haven't heard, I just heard that the uh, last uh, licenses just granted to travel to Cuba were given to Tariq and Mikhail Salahi. <laughs> <laughs> On condition they don't come back. <laughs> it's just, I'm kidding. No, they weren't granted. But, uh, but anyway, um, we had hearings just a couple of uh, weeks ago, as you know, in the in the Foreign Affairs uh, Committee here in the House. The first hearing we've had since I've been here in 10 years, specifically on the question is, sh sh specifically with the question, should the U.S. Uh, lift its travel ban? And, uh, of course, the answer is a resounding yes, I think, to all of us here, and I think to most people there at the hearing, certainly those, those watching. But I, I, I was amazed there at uh, the creativity and some of the arguments that uh, people come up with for why we should keep this uh, embargo in place. If you remember way back 20 years ago, the argument was, hey, the Soviet Union is pulling out. There's no way that, uh, that the Cubans, that the regime can survive uh, this, this economic calamity that's coming with the Soviet pullout and all the subsidies. So let's just keep this embargo in and this travel ban in just a little bit longer, and, uh, and they'll, be, they'll be done. Well... They went through what they call their special period uh, down there in the early 90s, and they, they survived it, the regime did. So in the mid-90s, they tightened it a little further and uh, said, surely that will do it. Um, when I came here in uh, 2001, we were told just a little, a little bit longer, a little bit longer, they won't be able to survive this uh, economically. And uh, here we are now, and uh, we're hearing the same thing again. Uh, but we're also, we also know that that argument is wearing a little thin, and so some other arguments were brought forward. One of the witnesses testified that uh, Cuba is pretty adept uh, at intelligence gathering. We all know that. Uh, there have been some spies here captured in the last little while. But to what uh, I didn't expect was for that to be used as a reason not to allow Americans to travel to Cuba. Imagine that. Uh, that a country is pretty good at intelligence gathering and has a lot of spies. So that is the reason why we shouldn't allow Americans to travel to Cuba, because they get, might be caught up in that web somehow. Uh, some people will allege that uh, Americans, every American that travels to Cuba is followed around. Now, that's simply absurd. Um, they simply don't have the manpower to do that. But assuming they were, then wouldn't it make sense to, to flood the island with visitors and confuse them a bit on that, make it, their job a little more difficult. 
but the argument that we shouldn't allow travel simply because it will make their intelligence gathering easier or we somehow be caught up in the web is a little crazy. It reminded me of in 2002 uh, when uh, John Bolton uh, said uh, the reason when we were coming close in the House here and in the Senate to passing language on the appropriation bill to deny money to enforce the travel ban, all of a sudden we came up, there was a statement that Cuba has, and I can't remember the exact language of it, but uh, that they have at least a limited offensive biological research capability, I think is the way he put it. Now, aside from the fact that every high school chemistry lab in the U.S. has that kind of capability and anyone overseas, uh, that was given as a reason why we shouldn't allow Americans to travel there. Well, if you're catching a theme here, we've heard the same arguments and new arguments, and none of them um, really amount to good reasons why Americans shouldn't be able to travel to Cuba. And, and I think the real value of the hearing that we had uh, was that uh, some of those testifying, including Mr. Peters here, as he always does, was able to cut through the arguments and say, this, you may want to continue to sanction the Cuban regime in ways that you are, or maybe think of some new ways, but why in the world do we have this sanction on Americans? This is a prohibition on American travel. Uh, it, it's impacting me and you and my constituents, your constituents, everybody else. Why should we be doing this? It simply makes no sense. I think we can stipulate uh, that the Castro brothers are pretty bad guys. They continue to do bad things. That's not the point. In fact, uh, when I traveled to, to Cuba, I, I believe it was uh, in 2002, uh, the first meeting I had with the foreign minister, now, I had uh, let them know that I wouldn't uh, be meeting with Fidel Castro. I saw no reason in it. It's a waste of time from what I'd heard. And, and, uh, and so I, and the five times I've traveled down to Cuba, I've never uh, met with Fidel Castro. But I, I told the foreign minister I wouldn't be meeting with him. And he said, was there a message you would like me to carry to him? And I said, yes. I said, tell him that we plan on lifting the travel ban. And if the Cuban government doesn't shape up, we'll lift the whole embargo. And, and that's, that's, that's exactly how I feel about it. It's finally time for a get-tough policy with Cuba. And a get-tough policy is not to continue what we've been doing for the last 50 years. Uh, that get, getting tough hasn't worked very well. A get-tough policy would be to allow Americans to take the values that they have and that they export so well, and that we have so many examples elsewhere in the world. Uh, we, we've been able to... To, to export democracy, and let us try that at least. There are certainly no guarantees uh, that, uh, that it will turn Cuba around. But I always say, uh, if there's any question, um, if your argument is as good as mine or mine is as good as yours, let's say, uh, let's, let's, say let's call it even. And the default ought to be, well, allow Americans to travel. Allow Americans to have the freedom. Um, there, unless you have a compelling national security reason otherwise, and, and I would, uh, uh, despite arguments about intelligence gathering or limited biological weapons capabilities um, or presence on the state sponsor of terrorism list, uh, if, if those all don't stop you from traveling to other countries, why should they stop you from traveling to Cuba? So uh, I appreciate uh, what the Cato Institute has done over the years to, to stand for freedom here. And, and uh, for me, that is what this argument has always been about. Um, and uh, should Americans simply be able to exercise 
their constitutional rights. And, and some, as they did point out in the hearing, that there is, uh, there is precedent, that certainly that the, the uh, United States government does have the ability to limit your constitutional right to travel. I'm not arguing that. Uh, I'm, I'm arguing the prudence of it. I'm arguing whether it's a good idea. And that's what Congress is here for. We can change the law and, and to make sure that Americans have that right to travel. So thank you all for, for having me here. I, I appreciate uh, um, the opportunity, and I'll be glad to answer any questions if there are before the votes come. But let me just leave with a, with a quote here from Ronald Reagan. In 1987, he said, I believe that our public diplomacy represents a powerful force, perhaps the most powerful force in our, at our disposal for shaping the history of the world. He said in, in 1984, uh, and he was talking about U.S.-Soviet relations here, but you can substitute U.S.-Cuba relations, I think, pretty easily. He said, it may seem an impossible dream to think there will come a time when Americans and Soviet citizens of all walks and uh, of all walks of life travel freely back and forth, visiting each other's homes to look up friends and professional colleagues, to work together on all sorts of problems, and if they feel like it, sit up late at night talking about the meaning of life and different ways to look at the world. I don't believe that that's an impossible dream. That's what he said in 1984, and it certainly wasn't an impossible dream uh, when you're talking about the U.S. and the Soviets, and it shouldn't be an impossible dream when we're talking about Cuba. And I, I hope that that day comes and comes soon. Thank you. All right, we, uh, if you want to, if uh, anyone has a question or two for Congressman Flake, he has just a few minutes before he needs to run to the floor. Uh, yes, sir. No, I, I'm not a fan of economic sanctions in general. Um, I, I, I think that uh, sometimes we in Congress tend to exercise kind of drive-by diplomacy with, with sanctions. And so uh, it, sometimes if they're multilateral, but unilateral sanctions uh, rarely, if ever, work and are counterproductive. Having said that, I think there is a place and time at times for economic sanctions when that is a last resort. Uh, but a travel ban, uh, I, I don't see uh, any utility for that, unless there's a national security reason are Americans in imminent danger traveling to this country. And uh, if it's in reason like that, perhaps you could curtail for a time. Uh, but, uh, but we don't have any travel ban for Iran, North Korea. Uh, didn't have one for Libya. Um, it, it simply makes no sense to have one with Cuba. So I, I would argue, no, there's no country in the world uh, right now um, that, uh, that justifies a travel ban. Do I call? Sure. Go ahead. Diego uh, Urdaneta from France Press. Congressman, are you confident that this bill can pass in the House? And if you know how many co-sponsors this bill for the ban... Okay. Uh, we have 178 co-sponsors at present. That's a lot of co-sponsors to have before you bring a bill to the floor. Uh, we need, obviously, two, 218 to, to pass, and so uh, we're trying to push closer toward that goal. Uh, in order to get it to the floor, we need to first get it through the Foreign Affairs Committee, and, uh, and that's a tight vote, but, but we're working on it. I think uh, as time passes, it becomes easier. 
Um, I, I should note that uh, I, I think when you cut through all the garbage, uh, it, it's more of an issue of we've had this policy for a long time. A lot of members are loath to change their vote or change their position on a topic uh, to be looked to concede something to the other side. And then also uh, this policy that we have is, is quite a cottage industry in certain places. <laughs> Um, in South Florida or, or, or elsewhere in particular. We, we spend uh, upwards of $50, $60 million a year uh, to implement the current policy that we have. It's not spent in Cuba. It's spent in the U.S. And those are hard habits to break, and those are programs that people want to see continue. And so it's, it's very difficult uh, to break people out of that mode. But I do think that, uh, that we do, do have the votes, and we'll continue to work and make sure we do. Yeah. Bill Moreland, the authors, appreciate your comments. Question for you. We talked about travel. There continue to be restrictions on trade, extent of financing, et cetera. What do you see to be the prospects for congressional action in the affirmative on, on lifting those? Well, thanks, Sam. With, with regard to trade, uh, we, I, I think we've had examples in the past couple of years of, of uh, restrictions being lifted on agricultural trade. Uh, we have some payment in advance uh, issues that have been interpreted to be very restrictive uh, that, that really, I think, weren't what the authors, uh, who we know, <laughs> because the authors of the language in, in the year 2000 told us, uh, was not what they intended. And so in terms of ag sales, uh, then, then I think that we will see some of the restrictions lifted, maybe medical devices as well, make it easier to export those. But as far as further uh, eroding of the... Uh, the uh, trade sanctions, uh, I'd say that's a tougher lift right now. I think travel is, uh, is as we put, some of those trade sanctions are on us, obviously, exporting, but they're also on the Cubans as well. Travel is just us, and, uh, and that's the point that we're making here. Quick sure. Are you hearing any promising words from the administration about working with you on lift, further lifting the trade sanctions? Um, with regard to the trade sanctions, there, there hasn't uh, been much uh, uh, that I'm aware of. Anyway, maybe Phil uh, is aware of something else. Yes? Paul Schiffman with the Saudi Press. What kind of change do you think might come about with American tourists going to Cuba that hasn't yet come about as a result of international tourists being able to go to Cuba? Right. Well, I, I think that uh, it's, it's easy to, to, to see uh, that Arizona, or Arizona, sorry, my old parochialism comes here, that the U.S. has a special relationship with Cuba, uh, culturally, historically, geographically. And, and the numbers of visitors that we're talking about uh, um, are, are simply many-fold greater than, uh, than, than we've seen with uh, European visitors, Canadian visitors, and others. Um, and uh, the cultural ties as well as we, we see, um, and the historical ties that we have. It's just a, it's, it's, it's a different uh, animal completely. Uh, like I said, there, there are no guarantees that, uh, that this will hasten democracy. I, I believe it will. Uh, some will make the argument that it won't. Uh, but in the absence of, of, of a mound of evidence on the other side that this is working, <laughs> the policy that we have, and after 50 years I think it's pretty safe to say that it's not, uh, that we, the default position should be allow Americans uh, the freedom to travel. So, probably one or two more. Any more? I think we're done. I'll go vote. Thank you so much.
Thanks, Congressman. I really appreciate you taking time out of what is obviously a uh, very busy day on Capitol Hill. Uh, next up, we have Ian Vasquez. Uh, Ian is the director of the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Uh, he's an expert on a, a range of, in- of issues uh, uh, in the Americas, uh, Latin America, North America, and uh, he's ex- traveled extensively throughout the region um, studying these issues. He has been, in fact, to, to Cuba as well as just about every other country uh, in this hemisphere. Um, he has a, a bachelor's degree from Northwestern University and a master's degree from the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. With that, Ian Vasquez. Thanks very much. For years, uh, Cato scholars have actually been in favor of lifting the complete embargo on Cuba for many different reasons. But when uh, Cuba ceased being a, a security threat to the United States with the collapse of Soviet communism, then the main rationale for the embargo vanished. And I do think that uh, vital U.S. interests should be the determining factors in setting U.S. uh, policy, even though I realize that there have been other rationales from promoting democracy to trying to get uh, compensation for expropriated properties that have been used over the years to justify current policy. A majority of Americans and now a majority of Cuban Americans support uh, lifting the embargo. So I think that the various legislative attempts and initiatives over in in recent years to change policy have been very much a reflection of public sentiment. But today we're discussing the travel ban, and I think that ending the travel ban uh, is actually uh, the single most effective uh, policy change that Washington uh, could implement if it wishes to marginally affect conditions in Cuba in the direction of greater freedom uh, for reasons that I will explain in a moment. Uh, First, though, I think it's worthwhile to just very briefly look at where Cuba has been in the past 50 years in order to put U.S. policy in perspective. The world has changed dramatically since the revolution uh, in 1959, and the central fact Uh, that has delegitimized Cuban communism uh, in the eyes of the world as as an attractive model has been, of course, the collapse of world uh, communism and its utter failure in meeting material and other needs. Uh, Communism has also failed in Cuba, though the regime uh, has not collapsed. During the Cold War, it was not evident who was going to win this contest between democratic capitalism and, and socialism, Cuba was indeed a national security threat, uh, especially because it received uh, support from, from its sponsor, Soviet Union, and uh, that support came in the form of massive uh, Soviet subsidies, which kept it afloat. In fact, uh, Cuban communism, like all communism, is incapable of creating wealth, and so has always had to live off of uh, outside support. So when the Soviet Union fell, It led to a severe and prolonged fall in Cuban GDP, which Cuba really has not yet uh, fully recovered from. It's possible that uh, GDP per capita is still at or above the 1989 uh, levels. The fall of the Soviet Union also led to limited policy change on the island. There was dollarization, for example, or opening up of a tourism industry to attract foreign investment in the 1990s. This also led to predictions that communism would fall there. In fact, Cuba has never abandoned 
communism. By the end of the 1990s and the early part of this decade, Cuba found a new sponsor in Venezuela, which has supported it through oil and other subsidies worth in between one to four billion dollars uh, per year. This has allowed Cuba to backtrack on some of the limited reforms that it started to introduce in the 1990s, uh, including dollarization. It has de-dollarized, and it has reduced uh, licenses of small private uh, businesses on the islands. There's also been a crackdown on dissidents. Nevertheless, huge economic and social problems uh, continue to worsen on the island. Infrastructure is crumbling. Agriculture is in ruin. There's a shortage of food. There is a severe housing shortage. Cuba is highly indebted. There's a lack of jobs and opportunity, especially for poor people, especially for young people, pardon me. There's a lack of resources to meet basic needs, including in, in health care. And so there is a widespread dissatisfaction among all elements of Cuban society with the current system. In the meantime, uh, Fidel Castro, as you all know, has stepped aside as president, and his brother Raul has taken over, promising some changes, announcing some others, for example, allowing uh, Cubans to have access to cell phones or access to the hotels uh, that are foreign hotels on the island. But so far, uh, nothing really meaningful uh, has been done or has uh, led to meaningful change on the island. In reality, uh, Raul, who is formerly the head of the, the military, which is the most important institution in Cuba, uh, has an iron grip on the country, and he is sure that nothing is going to get out of control. And so Cuba is now in a sort of holding pattern in which everybody is waiting for Fidel to die. And uh, that event will, I believe, be a signal to all that uh, finally some sort of change, probably in the area of economic policy, uh, can uh, be demanded at least more explicitly or openly than is the case currently. And the, this will be a pressure that Raul will not, I think, be able to resist since it will come from all sectors of society, including the Communist uh, Party and its membership. If there is one thing that I have learned from being in Cuba is that there are no communists in Cuba, with the exception of maybe a handful of people at the top. Nobody believes in, in communism. There's a, an extreme uh, cynicism uh, on the island, but of course it still remains a police state, and so it is hard to, ex to explicitly express those views. During most of the past five decades, then, you have had a U.S. policy that has been aimed at depriving the Cuban regime of resources and of uh, trying to institute uh, policy change and even regime change on the island. It has not, however, accomplished democratization or improvements in human rights. Whenever we have seen changes on the island, typically they have been the result of other factors, the fall of the Soviet Union or some sort of economic uh, problem within uh, Cuba, not because of the U.S. embargo or because of changes to U.S. policy on the margins. The United States simply has a limited effect on Cuba's communist policies, or for that matter, on overall economic conditions uh, in Cuba, as long as those policies in Cuba don't change. For that reason, 
I am not one of those who believes that an end to the embargo would somehow lead to huge political and economic changes in Cuba. Instead, I think that uh, Washington should change policy for other reasons. And of all the elements of the embargo on Cuba, I think that the, the end of travel, uh, uh, of the travel ban, is the smartest place to begin. If we were to end uh, trade and investment uh, sanctions that are currently in, in place, uh, that would not change the fact that Cuba would still be suffering and would still suffer from the self-inflicted wounds of, of communism. It would still be a poor and unsafe place to conduct business. So that ending the trade and investment embargo would not uh, somehow save communism from its own inherent flaws. The dynamic uh, with trade, however, is somewhat different. With, I'm sorry, with travel, however, is somewhat different. An end to the travel ban would significantly increase contact between ordinary Cubans and American citizens. Up to about a million Americans would probably be visiting uh, Cuba within uh, the first few years that they would be permitted to do so. And this increase in, in interaction uh, with Americans would help replace the all-encompassing Cuban state uh, with relationships based on voluntary interaction and supportive of civil society and, significantly, of the informal economy in Cuba. And the growth of the informal economy uh, in services and in goods, uh, I think, uh, would be inevitable, giving Cubans sources of, of income outside of the scope of the Cuban state and making them less dependent on it. Such a development, I think, would only benefit liberty on the island. To some extent, this, of course, has been happening uh, since the 1990s, and the authorities there seem well aware of the corrosive effect that contact with uh, market economies can have on uh, the Cuban system. They have been warning in recent years against corruption that has resulted from this kind of uh, new opening that Cuba has had to a limited extent. And so with the help of uh, Venezuelan subsidies, has been able to backtrack on some, some of these reforms, such as uh, dollarization uh, and other, uh, and other uh, activities. Well, uh, uh, <clears throat> so I, I think there's no reason why the, uh, the U.S. should not contribute to an increase in this kind of uh, private interaction with ordinary Cubans, even in the face of this uh, uh, partial back backtracking in Cuba, and even if some tourism dollars uh, are captured by the Cuban state. It's a judgment call, uh, but on balance, I think that the benefits of the pro-liberty dynamics far outweigh the costs of financing an already inefficient uh, Cuban state. The growth of the informal economy and of the number of Cubans independent of the state could also be an important element favoring uh, reform at a time at the time of Fidel's death. Again, uh, we should keep in mind that uh, the informal sector surely includes activity by all members of Cuban society, not just those who are marginalized, so that uh, the constituency for reform uh, will not be limited to uh, those who oppose uh, the state. So the degree to which uh, 
U.S. policy would be most helpful, I think, would be uh, uh, precisely in allowing Americans to travel to Cuba. Uh, though, let me add that conditions uh, in Cuba will not significantly change unless and until there's policy change coming from Havana. Ending the Cuban uh, tra travel embargo may have a marginal positive effect in that regard. Independent of, uh, of its effects on Cuba, however, I think that uh, Congress should end the travel embargo uh, as a matter of respecting American citizens' rights to travel where they choose. Washington recognizes those rights with respect to some of the countries that Congressman Flake uh, mentioned, Iran, Syria, North Korea, uh, who, uh, which are very repressive uh, uh, regimes. But it makes an exception in the case of Cuba, and this is something that, of course, the regime and its supporters uh, point out as evidence of it uh, being especially repressed and use that, of course, as an excuse uh, for some of the, the problems that their own policies create. In short, I think that Washington should apply a consistent policy and a policy that is also consistent with the American principles of individual liberty, and that's why I think we should end the travel embargo. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Our, our final panelist today is Phil Peters. He's the vice president of the Lexington Institute. Uh, he joined Lexington back in uh, 1999. He is an expert on uh, international economic programs with a specific focus on Latin America and Cuba. Uh, I think Congressman Flake mentioned he's testified uh, a number of times on Capitol Hill on the issue of Cuba. And uh, he's become a mainstay on a number of the television, the, the cable news pre uh, programs speaking about this subject. With that, I'll turn things over to Phil Peters. Thank you, uh, Brandon. Thank you, Ian. Thanks to everyone at Cato for putting this on. I'm, I'm delighted to be with you today. Uh, <clears throat> Brandon mentioned earlier in introducing Congressman Flake the, the idea of changing the relationship with Cuba and, and Congressman Flake's initiatives in that regard. Uh, right now with the Obama administration, the relationship between the two governments, I think, probably is changing some. There's a little more dialogue. There's a bit of a diplomatic opening and a willingness on the part of, of President Obama to, to address differences and try to build some areas of cooperation. What we're talking about today, I think, is, is something that, to me, frankly, is probably even more important. That is changing the relationship between our societies and breaking down and getting rid of completely the barriers between free interaction uh, between our societies. And I think it bears pointing out a very important point, that, that the, the, the choice... Uh, facing Congress and the administration now with regard to travel to Cuba is a, it, it, it's a very, we're in a very peculiar situation because President Obama in September virtually ended travel restrictions for Cuban Americans. He now allows Cuban Americans to travel to Cuba as they please to go visit their family as many times as they wish and for as long as they wish, and to spend as much money as they wish, and from here to send as much money as they wish to their families. So we're in this peculiar situation where one group of Americans, I think it's a very good thing, by the way, has the freedom to travel to Cuba without restriction. And the rest of us are under these sanctions that derive from the Trading with the Enemy Act, and its I don't think it's a sustainable uh, posture to be in, not to mention it's not a wise one. 
I agree completely with, with, with Ian. I think that the, the argument for ending the travel restrictions based on our convictions about limited government and about the freedom that Americans should have, uh, is, uh, to me that's entirely self-sufficient. And it's interesting. Today I, I saw a quote from uh, a, a woman who, has, uh, who is a, a dissident in Cuba who has stood up to the Cuban government and, and who, who fights for democracy. Her name is Marta Beatriz Roque. And she was interviewed, and, and she, she said that she doesn't think that if, um, if the United States allows Americans to travel freely, that that will force the Cuban government to change. But she said this, and I'm quoting, but I believe in democracy and freedom. I think everyone should have the freedom to travel, which is something that the Cuban people lack. So if we're fighting here for democracy, how can we try to restrict the freedom of the American people? I think that she's entirely, that, that, that's exactly the argument that Ian was putting forward with a slightly different twist. Others have argued that, that not, not just is it, uh, should, should we end the travel restrictions based on a conviction about freedom, but also because it would have a beneficial impact in Cuba. Congressman Flake mentioned that hearing last week, and I, I was there, and um, I, I must say it was a little bit surreal because some of the, some of the arguments that were that were put forward in favor of maintaining the, the current travel restrictions were that, that if uh, Americans go to Cuba, they have no contact with average Cubans, they have no impact, that none of their spending reaches any average Cubans. And to me, it was all sort of like saying that there's no snow in Moscow. Uh, there's a lot of ways to address this. I think I, I wish I had just sort of addressed it by saying, well, you should just go. I mean, if you go to Cuba, let's say you go to the colonial center of Havana. You go to, go to ha the Havana Bay, where the Maine was sunk, where the British took over briefly and bombarded Cuba. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful place. It's an old Spanish colonial port city. That, that, that area has been restored. There's all the colonial architecture there, the plazas, churches, housing, has been restored because of foreign travelers, because they tax foreign travelers that come in, and there's about $60 million a year that gets poured into restoration, tourism development, and social projects. If you're right there on the edge of the, of, of the, of the bay in Havana, there's a market there where Cuban artisans and, and artists sell their stuff, their paintings, their handicrafts. These are people who pay a little money to rent the space where they sell. They pay a tax every month. I'm sure we would all argue the tax is a little bit too high, but we might argue that here too. And they make a pretty good living. I think of one painter I know who employs four people who sell his paintings, and he employs uh, somebody who assists him in his studio, and he, he pays rent for storage to a, to a woman in the neighborhood so to, to store his stuff so he doesn't have to lug it all the way home. So this is one painter who's got six employees from that. If you start leaving that area and start walking through the colonial part of Havana, you see here and there places where there are rooms for rent. These are, are private entrepreneurs. There's about 5,000 of them around Cuba where people have a license and they rent rooms in their house. Again, we might argue that the taxes they pay are a little bit too high. Um, but these people make a good living doing this. They 
employ people, even though in many cases they're not supposed to. And so their families live better, and they have employees who live a lot better and have hard currency income as a result. If you leave the colonial section, if you go to into moving out to the west into an area where, where the, the architecture is from the early 20th century, there's a synagogue. And it's a, it's a, it's a very nice story, really. The, the, the Jewish community in Cuba is, is very small. A lot of the Jews don't know how to practice their faith, and, and, and the, the people that, 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 that run that synagogue are, are, are trying to engage the youth and, and inculcate the faith in them. It's a very small community, but a lot of Americans have gone there <clears throat> on these religious licenses, and they've helped to restore the synagogue. And what, what I really like about it is upstairs in this, this dank storage room, there's a, a, a pharmacy. I mean, it's a mess. It's a bunch of shelving, but it's, it's got all this medicine in it that, 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 that Americans have brought there. Some of it's huge bottles of Tylenol. A lot of it is, 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 is prescription medicine. That, and, you, and you look at the prescription, it says Dr. John Smith prescribing it, and he prescribes it to Dr. John Smith. So these doctors prescribe stuff themselves, they bring it down, and they donate it. Two days a week, the synagogue opens up, and Cubans come to it, and they can get medicine. A lot of them get medicine that they can't get through the health system. Cuban doctors and nurses come, too, to get medicine for their patients. Continue roaming around Havana, you, you, you can look for other private businesses. There are these famous paladares, these private restaurants that got their start in the early 1990s. There's fewer of them than there used to be, in some cases because I think the government sort of cracked down on them with, with regulatory enforcement, in some cases because the competition became harder for them. But there are some of those. There, there are, if you're getting around by taxi, some of the taxis are private taxis. They're not government taxis with a meter and all that. These are just regular people who have a license to operate a taxi. And there's more of those because recently Raul Castro has allowed more licenses for them. The, so I think it's, 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 it's pretty clear. And I think if you go within about five minutes, you see that, that foreign travelers do interact with Cubans, that the, the funds that foreign travelers spend does reach the average Cuban, and there's a whole, whole stratum of Cuban society, of the Cuban workforce, that earns a good living in hard currency as a result of it. When you think about these entrepreneurs, they, I think, are at the crux of an issue that the government is facing. I think there are two huge issues in Cuba that really illustrate how the country is at a turning point right now. One is how do they fix their economy. They fixed their economy to get out of the crisis that Ian referred to when the Soviet support ended and certainly survived politically and economically. But there are some big imbalances and, and, and problems. And Ian mentioned the, the fact that there's not enough jobs for young people. There are, there, there are two currencies, and, and the fact that they've got these two currencies operating side by side is a nightmare. It, it distorts incentives, and at the family level, there's a lot of people that can't make ends meet because they earn all their money in the old currency and it doesn't, doesn't pay for their basic needs. They're grappling with wage policy and how to create adequate incentives for people to work and produce. They've got to fix the currency system. They've got to, they've got to figure out how to generate more jobs. And if there's one thing that, that is most interesting to me about the situation they're in, it's that the government of Raul Castro, through his own statements, and especially through the, the, what you see in the Cuban media, 
which may sound surprising, but it's true, has delivered a very honest and, and often brutal diagnosis of their economic problems. And the distinguishing feature is that there's this, this, this very stark diagnosis, an honest diagnosis of how severe the problems are, and with the exception of agriculture, where some major and I think very positive moves have been made, this government has not yet fully tackled the challenges that it itself has identified. So fixing the economy and putting it on the right footing is a, a, a huge issue that the government itself has laid out for the public to consider, and, and at some point it will be held accountable one way or the other. And then, of course, the other issue <clears throat> in which Cuba is at a, a, a turning point in its history is, is political, and it's the leadership issue. And it's, the question is, when will the generation that fought in the revolution turn over top leadership positions to the people in Cuba who grew up in the revolution and, and were not around fighting in 1959. This all adds up to me to a, as a, to a time to pour on American influence and not to limit it. The limitation on our travel is obviously a limitation on our, on our influence, not just people who go as tourists and, 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 and bop around like the little tour of Havana I just told you, but people that go for conferences, students that go to study there and interact with Cubans people who go on religious exchanges, who I think should be able to go freely without a license, just as everyone else should. It's a time to pour on American influence. Openness on the part of the United States is not a guarantee that Cuba's political order is going to change. But I think it's important to, 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 for us to remember, to think about our own history, that we have had, our government has had, that objective of changing the political order in Cuba for many, many years. President Kennedy tried an amphibious invasion with Cuban exiles doing the invading. He tried sabotage. We've tried economic sanctions for a long time. We cranked up those sanctions when the Cold War ended in 1992 and 1996 with predictions that it's going to bring the system down. It didn't in either case. President Bush, the most recent President Bush, I think put our sanctions on steroids, even extending to family visits and limiting the ability of Cubans to visit their loved ones in a pretty draconian way. That didn't work. I think we have, we, we've seen that there's no magic bullet, and we've made many, many mistakes and have time and time and time again completely miscalculated the, the correlation of polit political forces in Cuba. So there's no magic bullet. Neither, neither sanctions nor openness are going to guarantee political change in Cuba, and we should all stop dreaming to that effect. If there's going to be political change in Cuba, it's going to be brought about by Cubans. The question for us is, first, whether we want to respect the liberties of our own citizens, but more importantly, if, if, we're, if it's Cuba that we're concerned about, whether we think that the, the situation in Cuba is going to be better with Americans traveling there or not, and whether our influence at this turning point in history can make a positive difference. I think we should have the confidence, as we have in many other situations with regard to communist countries, to vote in favor of, 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 of the proposition that, that, that American contact is going to have a positive influence in Cuba and will help things work out better in the long run. Thank you. <laughs>